Let's turn to that passage that Richard was referring to earlier in 2 Timothy and um, read it together. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and you'll find it on page 1196, 1196 of the copies of the Bibles that are in the pews. Um, if you're visiting with us, I should just explain that we've been working our way through 2 Timothy over the last uh, month or so, and various people have been preaching on different parts of it. Philip Gilpin will be doing the next part next week, and it's fallen to me to um, look this evening at verses 8 to 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. So let's read them together. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So reads God's word. Our theme in looking in Second Timothy has been the theme of remembering, bearing in mind that this is probably the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He's writing it to Timothy, who was a very dear friend and helper and companion for many years, possibly two decades by this stage. And this evening, the theme that we're taking is taken from the opening part of verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ. This is Paul's encouragement and instruction to Timothy. Well, I've got three questions for you this evening, which arise uh, out of this short passage of Scripture, which I want to leave with you as we look at it together. And the first question is simply this, who is your Jesus? I don't mean what does he look like. Although I find that very interesting. I love listening to what people think Jesus might have looked like. For some, he's like some sort of Californian uh, beach surfer with flowing hair that just storms through every situation. For others, he's possibly, and apologies to any present, more like a kind of computer geek, an insignificant sort of person, but very brilliant in his own way. For some, he's dark-skinned. For some, they think of him as light-skinned, tall or short, stunning or ordinary. That's not quite what I mean. I'm thinking more of how you would summarize him in a few short statements. Who is your Jesus? If someone was asking you that and you were trying to summarize it, if someone was asking you to give them a a quick flavor of someone who was dear to you, maybe a grandparent or or a friend, what kind of statements would you come up with? Would it be something like a great sense of humor and fond of his food or miserable old so-and-so and tight-fisted? Or very laid back, but very distinguished. What kind of way would you summarize someone? Well, I don't know whether you've noticed, but in verse 8, Paul has a remarkably profound statement describing Jesus Christ. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead, descended from David. It would appear that Paul is using here a phrase that would have been very familiar to Timothy. It's more like a memory prompt than a full-blown exposition or statement. It's a little phrase, it's a kind of shorthand, which would have meant a lot between the two of them. 
In recent weeks, we have learned how by this stage, Paul and Timothy had spent a great deal of time working together, teaching together, writing even some of the letters of the New Testament. And it was the kind of relationship in which they didn't need to go into long explanations of everything every time. They would know what they were talking about. And when Paul says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. There's a whole lot of information packed into that that he doesn't need for Timothy's sake to unpack it. If you want to get a sense of it, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Because there you'll see the way in which Paul says the same kind of things, but to a group of people who maybe need a bit more background and a bit more explanation. At the very end of the book of Romans... In chapter 16, when Paul's sending greetings to the church that he's writing to, he includes Timothy in it. And he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you. But it's Romans chapter 1 I want us to look at just for a couple of minutes to unpack this phrase, something with which Timothy would have been very familiar. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 at the beginning. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you get the sense of the same kind of statements in Romans chapter 1 that Paul expresses to Timothy in verse 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 2? Jesus, a descendant of David, in regard to his human nature, one of the ways of thinking about Jesus that is very important. Jesus, the Son of God, declared with power to be the Son of God through his resurrection from the dead. And in 2 Timothy 2, the little phrase that's used, raised from the dead, descended from David, is a kind of shorthand summary of the key elements of what the Bible teaches us about Jesus Christ. Son of God and man. Human. This has always been controversial. And it's always been, for some people, a stumbling block. And for Christians and those who profess to follow Jesus, it can sometimes be the kind of thing that we let slip. Recently, for example, the um, Islamic Centre was running a public meeting in Queen's explaining what Muslims believe about Jesus. I don't know whether you watched the Manchester Passion or not, but if you did, you would have um, heard a couple of people been interviewed who were saying exactly the same kind of thing. And they were very clear um, in saying that they don't believe that he was the Son of God, don't believe that he was divine, they do believe in his existence, do believe that he was a prophet and a very important one wouldn't dispute that as to his humanity he was a descendant of David, would agree with all of that. But the bit about raised from the dead, the bit about being the son of God, that would be much too far. A couple of Sunday mornings ago we were thinking, amongst other things, about the Gospel of Judas that has recently been published and the the ideas behind it uh, of the early centuries after the life of Jesus about uh, Christ really being a spirit that inhabited a body of a person called Jesus and Judas was doing a good thing by letting the Christ spirit free from this body and betraying him and, and having him put to death in that way. Great controversies that have arisen about how do you understand Jesus? Who is he? Who is this Jesus that Paul is in prison for the sake of? Well, it's Jesus uh, summarized in a very few words by Paul in verse 8, raised from the dead, descended from David. Son of God, born of human flesh, a descendant of David. 
I don't know whether you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed or not. It was a creed that was drawn up in the very uh, early period after the life of Christ in the first or second century. And it was drawn up emphasizing the true humanity and divinity of Jesus. Because right from the earliest stages, this was a a hotly debated and and, uh, discussed issue. And the Apostles' Creed goes as follows. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. And in a few words, trying to bring together this uh, understanding expressed by the Apostle Paul here in Romans 1, and in shorthand to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Jesus Christ, descended from David, raised from the dead. It continued to be a controversy and by the 4th century there was a a great council that was called and out of it, amongst other things, came the Nicene Creed. And the same ideas there in that creed, which some of you might actually know off by heart, uh, where the idea of who Jesus is, is developed carefully. The words are carefully chosen. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary and was made man. Back to my question. Who is your Jesus? How would you describe him? Is your Jesus just a theological idea? Uh, An idea that you would argue about all day long and defend to the hilt, but at the end of the day, just a theological idea. Is your Jesus just a man? Someone who takes his place with every great other person that's ever lived. Someone that has uh, your respect, but not necessarily your loyalty and worship or devotion, because we understand that that goes to God alone. Or is your Jesus just actually a comfort blanket? Something that you're actually very comfortable in believing in, but don't really think very much about. I've never really thought about what it means to speak of Jesus as Son of God, descended from David. Who is your Jesus? Paul's very clear. God in flesh. Raised from the dead, descended from David. Might stretch us. It might be difficult to comprehend, but Paul's very clear. Second question that arises for me out of this passage is, what is your gospel? Look at what um, Paul says to Timothy in the second part of verse 8 and down to verse 10. He talks about, this is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What's your good news? No, I don't mean what happened to you in the last week that really pleased you. What's the big message that you would have to share with the world? What's the big story that you would have to tell that would inspire hope in people and give them confidence? What do you hold on to that makes sense of your existence? What do you have to offer the generations coming behind you? 
Paul says that his good news is all about Jesus and all about the salvation and glory that comes through him to those who believe. When Paul uses the phrase, my gospel, as we have it there in verse 8, it's not a gospel that he has developed as opposed to what everybody else used to believe. There are plenty who argue that. You'll find plenty of books that you can pick up in the bookshops which will argue that the Apostle Paul basically created Christianity. It wasn't what Jesus intended. It wasn't what the early apostles intended. It was more out of his mind as a Pharisee uh, in the way in which he thought. But that's not what Paul means here. Paul means my gospel as opposed to the false gospels which were taking shape in the world around him, influencing the churches and which Timothy was having to contend with as well. If you go back to that passage in Romans 1 that we looked at, you get a sense very clearly there of what Paul's gospel was. Did you notice the introduction? Romans 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Paul's gospel is God's good news. The good news that God has declared through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul develops this right throughout that opening chapter of Romans and right the whole way through the book really. Because in verses 3 to 4 he makes it clear as we've already read that this good news, this gospel is about Jesus. In verse 5, if you see it there, he talks about how it's a gospel, it's a good news that makes a claim, a call on people's lives. In verse 16 he describes it as the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. In verse 17 he explains how it's God's good news that makes it possible and explains how it is possible for us to be put right with him. This is Paul's gospel. Not something that he decided to invent. Not something that he piggybacked on the life of a Nazarite, Nazarene called Jesus. But something that God had revealed in Jesus Christ. I'm sure Timothy knew Paul's gospel well. But I suspect that Paul was aware that with Timothy caught up in church life and dealing with all kinds of error and trying to establish the church for the future, it would be possible for Timothy, good guy as he was, to lose his focus on the good news about Jesus. Undoubtedly there was the temptation for Timothy to get caught up in the politics of church life as he's working there, the business of appointing leaders and trying to establish order. Timothy could get caught up in seeking to defend his own authority. And Paul has a lot to say about that in this letter and about how Paul should conduct himself with, or Timothy should conduct himself with confidence. And Paul seems to be saying to Timothy at this point, remember Jesus Christ. And Timothy, remember that he is the good news for which I am suffering. It's all about Jesus and it's all about the salvation that is found in him. Because Paul knew that he wasn't suffering simply for being a pain in the neck of the authorities, which undoubtedly he was. He knew he wasn't suffering simply because he was some kind of insufferable character that nobody else could get on with. That doesn't seem to be the case. Paul knew that it was the message of Jesus that was the cause of his chains. But he also knew that the chains might be on him, but they could never be on the gospel, on the message. Because Paul knew that the gospel was not about chains. 
and tying people down. It was about liberty. It was about freedom. It was about salvation. It was about new life in Christ, ultimately to be crowned with glory in sharing with him. What's your gospel? What's your good news? What's the thing that you take to other people or would share with other people? I don't know whether you've heard of the reduced Shakespeare company or not. I've never actually seen them at work, but I've heard reviews of them, some of them good and some of them bad. They take the plays of Shakespeare and they, some say dilute them, some say summarize them, some say do terrible things with them, all kinds of of responses to their work, but they take the key ideas of Shakespeare and they do all sorts of interesting things with them. Some people say it's very succinct, some say it's distorted. When the gospel, when what you believe in is reduced down, is it succinct like Paul or is it distorted? What's the gospel that we want to share? Is it the kind of O'Grady gospel? No offence to anybody called O'Grady present. When I was young and in the BB, we used to do, amongst other things, one of those very simple games, O'Grady says. You can do it in all kinds of ways. You know, O'Grady says, put your hand on your head. O'Grady says, sit down. O'Grady says, stand up, sit down. And then you would all discover who was out. Is that the kind of gospel we have? Do this, do that, do the other. What, you don't get caught out? Because sometimes it would appear that way. Is it a, an anything goes gospel? Oh, we've got great news for you in Jesus. You know, there's nothing to worry about. You're going to heaven. Just sign the pledge. Say the prayer. Live as you like. Is it a get out of hell gospel? Where the whole focus is simply about getting out of hell with your little ticket at the end of the day. But as little to say about life. Is it the find God's big plan for your life gospel that's all about self-fulfillment? Is it the secret of never being sick, broke or short of attractive men and women around you gospel which some people seem to suggest? Is it so focused on human need that there's no need for Jesus Christ? Or is it about Jesus? Raised from the dead. Descended from David. Is it about the Son of God? Emmanuel, God with us, taking our place, dying for us, saviour and liberator of those who follow him, who become his disciples and seek to share in his kingdom. What is your gospel? What is your good news? What are you pinning your life on? What are you sharing with other people? Is your gospel worth going to jail for? Is your gospel worth dying for? Not that either will necessarily happen, but you never know. Third question, what is your commitment? What are the things and who are the people to whom you are absolutely committed? Is it children or parents or friends? Is it your job or your studies, your ambitions or your career? What are the things from which it would take all of heaven and earth to drag you away? Well, I have no doubt about Paul's commitment to the gospel about Jesus. That's why he was in chains. That's why he was living through all of this, even though, as we uh, discover, many people had abandoned him. And I don't think there's much doubt about Timothy's either. But there's something very interesting going on with the next statement uh, in verses 11 to 13 of this passage. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. 
I'm not sure what translation or version of the Bible you're following in, but if you're following this in the New International Version or some of the others, you'll notice that the text is indented. It's set off differently from the rest of the text. And there's a reason for that, because many translators, when they're translating, if they feel they're dealing with something that isn't just straight prose, it's maybe more to do with poetry or something, they set it in differently, just so that you get a sense that there's something going on here. And a lot of people think that what Paul is doing here is quoting from a hymn that would have been used in the church in his days, or a common statement that would have been familiar to people in the church in the early days. Preachers still do that kind of thing, where sometimes in a sermon we'll use the line of a hymn or something and it'll stir memories and you don't need to complete the whole thing because you know what the rest of it is about. And it does seem that Paul here is rehearsing something that he and Timothy knew well. He's not teaching Timothy something brand new here. Timothy knew this. But maybe as Timothy's reading it, he's beginning to hum a tune in his head as he recognizes what's going on here. It's all part of the remembering thing. Here's something to hang on to, Timothy. Here's something to encourage you in your commitment. It's a very interesting few lines. It's generally interpreted in two ways. Some people say that the first part of it, verse 11 and the first part of verse 12, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That that's the first section and that's the encouragement section. And then there's a second section which follows on. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, which is a warning section. And the faithful there would mean that he remains faithful to the promise to disown us, to judgment. That's one way of reading it. Some say the whole thing is really about encouragement, which I have to confess is how I see it. It's Paul saying, Timothy, remember, if we died with him, we will live with him. If we had time to go back to the book of Romans, you'd find that. You'll find it if you take a look at it sometime in Romans chapter 6, where in talking about what it means to be a Christian and using the illustration of baptism, Paul talks about how true it is that if we have died with Christ, we rise with him to a whole new way of life, and we will live with him eternally. If we endure, we will reign. If you want to get a sense of that, start reading the book of Revelation. Don't worry about whether you understand it all or not. You'll certainly get the impression there that if we endure, which is the whole call to the Christians to whom it was written, we will reign with him, is the message of the book of Revelation. So these were things that were believed in the early church. And then it goes on to say, if we disown him, he will disown us, which is actually, it would appear, a reference to something that Jesus himself said, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 33. And there in Matthew 10:33, Jesus is sending out his disciples to minister. And he's encouraging them, sending them out with as much encouragement as he can. And he's saying to them in verse 26 and verse 28, don't be afraid. I'll be with you. Don't be afraid what happens to you. And then in verse 33, he makes the statement which is echoed here. And it's paralleled with the statement that's recorded in Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, where Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And I don't think the disown needs to be read or should properly be read as abandoned or, or damned or condemned forever. It's this business of if we're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of us. 
And if we're faithless, will he be faithless to us? No. It's not possible. Because that would be to go against his own nature and his own character. And what Timothy is being encouraged in here is simply this statement, which he was probably very familiar with. Which means everything about your relationship with Jesus Christ should encourage you to be committed to him. Because if we've died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we are ashamed to him, yes, he will be ashamed of us. But if we are faithless, the thing we can be sure of is he will remain faithful. Because he's not capable of being faithless like us. He will not deny himself and his own nature. What Paul seems to be saying to Timothy is, Timothy, you know well that you can maintain your commitment with confidence. Because you always know where you stand when you're following Jesus. You always know you'll be dealt with by the same standard of justice and fairness because he doesn't change and he's not faithless like us. And you know, Timothy, that we might disown him. We might make him ashamed. And he might actually be ashamed of us when he comes in his Father's glory. And we might be faithless, but he is never faithless. He is always faithful. And therefore we know that in the journey of commitment and following Jesus, when we are faithless, there is forgiveness when we come to put it right. There is renewal. There is restoration when we come to put right our relationship with Christ. Yeah, we might cause him embarrassment. We might cause him to be ashamed. We might disown him as Peter did before other people. But we will find that he is absolutely faithful to us in the way in which he comes after us as he did with Peter after his resurrection. And grant us the forgiveness and the grace that we need. Hey, in the light of his commitment to me, what's my commitment to him? What's your commitment to Jesus? Three questions that seem to arise out of this passage. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, son of David, son of God, raised from the dead, descended from David, Who is your Jesus? Remember Jesus Christ, who is God's good news, God's gospel. What's your gospel? What do you believe in? Remember Jesus Christ and all his glory and faithfulness and his constant commitment to us. What's your commitment to him?